you would please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you had called it a pagan metropolis, you would have been right. Because the city of Corinth, while physically and visibly very beautiful, was as corrupt on the inside as any city in the ancient world. Topographically and geographically, it was perfectly located. Southern region of Greece, a port city, there by major trade routes. And looking at where it was and the just the picturesque view of Corinth, it was quite amazing to look at. In fact, there are many of the structures that still exist, at least in some form, and certain pictures of those as they sit against the hilltops of Corinth are just absolutely astonishing. As you look through encyclopedic information, it was a very physically beautiful city. But as I began by saying, it was a pagan metropolis on the inside, it was rotten to the core. Just to the very south of the city of Corinth, and still a part of the city, was a hill known as Corinth. And this hill was raised in elevation some 1,800 feet, about 1,886 feet in elevation, just to be specific. And on top of this hill stood the ancient temple of Aphrodite. Now, they worshipped other deities like Zeus and other uh, Greek mythological gods like uh, Poseidon and a number of the others, they were very highly superstitious, but Aphrodite was their main one, the goddess of love and beauty. And a thousand temple prostitutes resided inside of this temple on top of the hill in the city of Corinth. And every single night in Corinth, those thousand temple prostitutes ascended upon the city to commit all kinds of lewd acts with its citizens. That is why passers-by and travelers would say of the city of Corinth, it's not every man who can afford the city of Corinth because of the prostitutes that were there. And for the expression that existed in that day, to live like a Corinthian simply was a byword to live a debaucherous and drunken lifestyle. That's the kind of lifestyle that existed in the city of Corinth because Corinth was a very, very corrupted city. And yet looking at the city of Corinth, this awfully debaucherous, debased city, something had happened to some people on the inside. Paul was able to write of certain individuals who had once committed these base and lewd sins that there was a church of God in Corinth. He would be able to call them throughout this epistle brothers because something had changed with regard to their lifestyle. I mean, we're talking about people in chapter 6, verse 9, who were committing typical sins, typical and sort of epitomized in the city of Corinth, sins like fornication and idolatry, verse 9, and adultery and the effeminacy and the abusers of themselves with mankind, homosexuality and fornication. And we're talking about thievery and covetousness and drunkenness and those who would revile and extort. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. But these sins were typical in the city of Corinth. And here he individuals who were once caught up in this but aren't caught up in it anymore. Something changed with regard to these people. They're church of God now. They're brothers throughout the book. Because here's what happened. Paul taught the gospel. And others did in the city of Corinth. And they, hearing the gospel, believed they were baptized for the remission of their sins. And when they came up out of the water, they were new creations. According to Romans 6, 3, and 4, they had started a brand new life inside of the Christ. And the way that they were is not the way they are now. 
They don't live for self anymore. And you talk about divisive cities. Corinth was a divisive city politically, philosophically. That's the way the city of Corinth was. And now the entire structure, the entire lifestyle of these individuals has changed. It is no longer a lone wolf lifestyle. They do not think about themselves exclusively anymore because now they belong to a brotherhood. Now they belong to a group of individuals who have done the same thing that they've done in becoming New Testament Christians. And now they're a part of something very special and very grand. And that's why Paul would use the descriptive phraseology throughout this book. And when one of them would seek to go back into the lifestyle that they had lived prior to their becoming a Christian, it was an indication that something was very seriously wrong. And for a man to impenitently continue in that lifestyle was tragic indeed. But remember, they don't live the way they used to live anymore. Because now they live with the view of others. And when one of their own goes back into the lifestyle they lived when they were dead in sin, they have to do something about it. The question is, whose responsibility is that? Is it the responsibility of the located preacher in the city of Corinth, his alone, to make sure that this individual who once was a pagan idolater who lived in fornication and maybe even the sin of homosexuality, maybe he was a thief or a drunk who's gone back into that lifestyle, is it the located preacher's job exclusively and his job only as the only single member of that congregation whose job it is to bring that individual back even to the point of rendering punitive discipline on that individual or is it his responsibility and the elders exclusively, if there were elders in Corinth, or because of their unique relationship now gained as being a part of this great New Testament church, is that a responsibility that is leveled and waged upon every single one in the city of Corinth who formerly lived in that state, who doesn't live in that state now, who ought to express enough concern to get the brother who's going back into this state out? And that's our question for the hour. Because we've already seen that physical families need to be involved in church discipline. And as Cliff said yesterday, if I may quote him, that the withdrawal of fellowship or church discipline will be made or broken on the lines of physical families. We've already seen yesterday that sister congregations must respect withdrawal of fellowship and enactments of church discipline, they have to respect that because we understand that fellowship is broader, is bigger than. It is a universal concept. It's not just a local concept, but local congregations that are faithful to the Lord and His Word are in fellowship with each other just on the basis of fellowship. Our question for this hour, though, is concerning the Northside Church of Christ or wherever you may be from, Montgomery, Alabama, or uh, Southern Georgia, wherever we may be from, in our local works, when church discipline is enacted at any stage, whose responsibility is to enact that? And we're going to sustain the proposition this hour that it is the responsibility of every member in the local work to be involved in church discipline. I'll do it three ways. Number one, I want to give you some principles regarding collective action, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about in the local work, we're talking about a local congregation, but we're talking about collective activity inside of a local congregation. That's our obligation is to sustain that proposition. We've said it before you this morning. Everybody must be involved, okay? You're talking about collective action. How do we do that? Number one is in principle. Number two, I want to show you a pattern of collective action, and all of these points in some way or another are going to come from the book of 1 Corinthians. And then at the end, I want to show you something else with regard to this collective action. And I want to show you the power of collective action at the end and how 
powerful a person or a group of people who work together can be and when they're doing it God's way. Number one, let's look at the principle of collective action. And I want to give you three things. These are just three nuggets of wisdom. I did not come up with these. They're found in the Bible. You'll find these, but I want to show you from three nuggets of wisdom, three pieces of gold from the Bible, how that we are required all together to be involved in spiritual labors, yea, even church discipline, even to the point of withdrawing fellowship. Number one, principle number one. In the Bible, we learn principle number one, it only takes one defector, one person who decides not to do the right thing to ruin the work of many. Let's go back in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, the children of Israel, they've crossed over the Jordan. They're getting ready now to take the city of Jericho. And I want you to watch in Joshua chapter 6 how God begins in verse 1. This is what we call one of those prophetic perfects in the Bible where God will say, I have given you something when at this point we do not actually physically possess it. But in the mind of God, it is so certain he can speak of it in terms as if they already possess it. Just like he can say in many New Testament passages that we have eternal life, even though at this point we do not physically possess Possess eternal life, but it's so certain in the mind of God, he can speak of it in terms as if we already possess it. And he does that with regard to the city of Jericho. And notice verse 1, Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. So you have this fortified city, and if you can imagine the cities as they were fortified in those days, those huge walls that made cities at that time impregnable, these just impassable walls, and upon which would stand legions of soldiers who would be able to, from a high vantage point, be able to wipe out any army that came up against them. Here's the city of Jericho, straightly shut up, and watch what God says in verse 2. The Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. All those individuals who are going to stand and defend the city, the city itself, I have already in my mind given it to you. There's some conditions though, verse 3. You shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. This shalt thou do six days. So six days they go around once. Notice verse 4. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. All right, six days they go around once. On the seventh day they go around seven times, and the priests blow those horns. And it shall come to pass, verse 5, that when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Now you know, coming up, the only part of the city that actually does not fall is Rahab's part where she had helped those spies, and she does according to the condition that was placed upon her to put that certain element out of her window, and she does that, and her, her actual household and the physical structure where she's at against that wall stands, but everything is going to fall down flat. And they do this beginning in verse 8. It came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord. And blew the trumpets. The ark of the covenant followed them. And in verse 9 they begin. And watch what happens. You go all the way around to verse 12. Joshua rose up early in the morning. The priests took up the ark. The seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark went on continually. They blew the trumpets. They The armed men went before them. The uh, rearward 
came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on, blowing the trumpets, just like God said to do. They're following the pattern. A great demonstration of faith on their part. Verse 4, the second day they compassed the city once, they did so six days they do this. Just like God said, around six, six days, you go around once on those six days, they do that. This great huge procession goes around the city. And if you're in the city of Jericho and you're not in the household of Rahab and you know what's going on, you might think it's quite silly that people are marching around your city and they can't get in and they're blowing these horns. And then watch this on verse 15. It came to pass on the seventh day that they arose early at the dawning of day. They compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. So the seventh day they go around seven times now. And then in verse 16 it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets. Joshua said unto the people, shout for the Lord hath given you the city. Now watch. And the city shall be accursed even it and all that are therein. Only in verse 17 Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And when ye and any uh, likewise keep yourselves, he says, in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. All the silver, the gold, the vessels of brass, the iron, the consecrated, are they consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasure of the Lord. All the booty, all of the spoils of war, they belong to the Lord. Nobody's allowed to go in and take anything of the city that's left. All of it goes to the treasury to support the service of the priests and the Lord. So the people shouted, verse 20, when the priest blew the trumpet, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great noise that the wall fell down flat, just like God said, that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man, woman, young and old, ox, sheep, ass with the edge of the sword. And you can imagine what the sound of it must have been when they shouted. And the walls of Jericho fell and the city just fell flat. Pretty outstanding, isn't it? And you think, here's, here's an occasion where on the record books it will go down forever. One of the greatest victories, one of the greatest military histories or victories in history. And they did this with God's help. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 11 and verse 30, we know that by faith the walls of Jericho fell. A great demonstration of faith on their part. And here they are, they take this amazing city and they do it with God's help. And all over the ancient world, the, the noise would be spread abroad of their great victory and how God helped them with a mighty hand. And, and you get to verse 1 of chapter 7 and the very first word is a word of contrast. Here's this amazing victory. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. You drop back over and look at verse 18. Remember what he said, from the accursed thing, you don't do that lest you make yourselves accursed. And here are the mighty walls of Jericho have fallen. The people have taken Jericho, but notice, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah took of the accursed thing. And watch this, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Achan. No. The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And you go on down and you'll find the same language. They actually go up. They're fighting the men of Ai. When you get to verse 2 and they lose the battle and Joshua comes back to the Lord and says, what has happened? Here we have this great military victory against Jericho and you brought it down with your mighty hand and now we've taken several thousand men. We've gone up. We've lost about 36 of them. In about uh, verse 5 he says, the men of Ai smote about 36 of them. They flee away. They don't have the victory anymore. And Joshua said, what happened? And God said, somebody caused you to stink. 
Somebody caused you to sin. And you get down to verse 20. Achan answered Joshua and said, After they find him, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord of Israel. And thus and thus have I done when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. But I want you to notice what happened. Here's an entire congregation of people. Here's a group of people who do something outstanding and one man ruins everything. Because the principle is established in the Bible. It only takes one person to ruin the righteous work of many people. And how many illustrations have been given already this week, and for that I'm thankful, of personal illustrations where someone talks about a congregation that withdrew fellowship. In my mind, I'm thinking specifically where Dub McLeish talked about a withdrawn from brother, and the only thing that some people could do on that particular day was take the man out to lunch and talk about how bad the decision to withdraw fellowship was. I don't know how his action is any different than Aiken's. Because it only takes one person to ruin the righteous efforts of many. That's a principle established in the Bible. Principle number two. Refuge or protection is for innocent people. Not for guilty people. Go to Numbers chapter 35. I want you to watch this. And let's establish a principle in the Bible that when a person is guilty, no refuge is to be given for that person. Innocent people are to be protected, but not the guilty. And I think you can see where we're going with this line of reasoning. But what we're going to suggest at the end is when a person is in sin, that person doesn't need to find refuge among God's people. He needs to be ashamed of his actions so that he can repent. Numbers chapter 35 is the record of the cities of refuge. And you have them specifically mentioned in verse 11. And prior to that, he says, uh, for instance, in verse 11 of Numbers 35, Then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person at unawares. Now, I want you to watch. You have a city that was designed to protect certain people. Now, what we're going to do is say, you do in the Lord's church have a protective wall. You have protection and you have refuge inside of the Lord's church, but we're going to make the point this morning, refuge inside of the Lord's church is for righteous people, not for sinners. I want you to watch this. You start in verse 12, it says, they, these cities, they shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger. Now watch this, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. So these cities of refuge, among other things, were designed to be a judicial, they were designed as these priestly cities to be cities in which the case could be heard and tried and the facts could be sorted out and the truth could be discerned in the matter. And watch this. Verse 13, of the cities which ye shall give, six cities ye shall have for refuge. There's going to be protection in six cities. They're going to be divided among the 12 tribes of war, these Levitical cities. They're going to be divided among these 12 tribes. And uh, you've got basically two per tribe in this. And he says, verse uh, 14, you shall give three cities on this side of Jordan, three cities ye shall give in the land of Canaan, which shall be cities of refuge. So again, cities of protection. Now watch verse 15 carefully. These six cities shall be a refuge, now watch, both for the children of Israel, that's a Jew, for the stranger, that'd be a Gentile, and for the sojourner among them. So the law governing the law of the land at that time, the law of Moses for Jew, for Gentile, watch this verse 15, that everyone that killeth any person unawares may flee thither. If he's accidentally taken the life of a man, if he didn't intend to do that, but something happened accidentally, these cities of refuge are for protection for those people who have innocently taken the life of someone else. But notice verse 16. 
And if you smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he's a murderer. If he meant to do it, he committed murder. The murderer shall be put to death. There's no refuge for a person who is in error. Only the innocent person has refuge. Verse 17. And if you smite him with a throwing a stone, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 18. Or if you smite him with a hand weapon of wood, wherewith he may die, and he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he meant to do it, if he is guilty of the crime, there is no refuge for that man. But drop down and notice verse 22, after going through a series of these, verse 22, but if he thrust him suddenly without enmity, or have cast upon him anything without laying a weight or a stone wherewith him a man may die, seeing him not, and cast it upon him that he may die, and was not his enemy, neither sought his, his, his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the revenger of blood, according to these judgments, and the congregation shall deliver the slayer of blood out of the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge, whither he fled. If he accidentally committed the crime, if he's an innocent man, you protect him. But if he's guilty in the Old Testament, no protection provided for guilty parties. Now, you might want to just flip forward in 1 Corinthians 5 and notice already we have these two principles that we've established in 1 Corinthians 5 because we've said, number one, as far as a principle is concerned, it only takes the the unrighteous efforts of one individual, a defector, to ruin the work of many. Well, you get down and look at verse 6. He says, your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? That's the principle we established back in Joshua chapter 6. Achan ruined the whole lump because of his activities. And then we established a second principle that said, secondarily, that when you look at a passage like Numbers chapter 35, refuge, protection is given for innocent people, not guilty. Look at verse 3. Verily I... As absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. And you could couple that in verse 2 with their glorying. And Paul said, your glorying is not good. You thought to give refuge to this man, but refuge is not for guilty parties. Refuge is for the innocent. And then let's... Um, Let's, well, let's, we could do one more, several, actually we could do several more. But here's what we've established. And uh, let's, 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 because of time's sake, I know we're going to get out. Let's do this. Number one, it only takes the unrighteous effort of one person, a defector, to run the work of many. And number two, all a person has to do is, uh, is be guilty and he's to be given no refuge among the people of God. And let's, let's end our principles here. I, I might do some more writing on uh, some of these later, but it's going to detract from time. So let's let's move from principle. Uh, let's move from principle into uh, the pattern. Let's go to the pattern now. In First Corinthians chapter five, regarding the pattern of collective action, I want you to watch this. In discipline matters, we are told that everybody in a congregation is to be active. Go down and look at verse, uh, look at verse one. Notice this. He says, it's reported commonly that there's fornication. Now watch this. And some of these were emphasized, perhaps not to the same degree that we're going to emphasize them now, but I want you to watch this. Fornication, now watch, among you. Drop down to verse two. And you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. All these are plural. Notice you get down to verse 11. He says, Now I've written unto you, that's plural, not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. Notice the plural, the plural there, the idea of you being the Corinthian congregation. 
Then in verse 13, notice the plurality again when he says, But them that are without, God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves, notice the plurality, that wicked person. In this passage, there's an emphasis upon the entire congregation. And we could just very practically say, well, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church in Corinth. How many people in the church of Corinth is Paul talking to? Well, he's talking to the church of God. And according to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, he's talking to the saints individually of that congregation. He's talking to every member of that congregation. And dropping back to verse 4, notice he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, that is by God's authority, when you are gathered together, that is the assembly, and my spirit where, uh, with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's our question that we ask in this regard. When an assembly of the saints takes place, how many saints are supposed to be there? All of them. So when Paul commands the assembly, when he commands the congregation, he is commanding every single member of that congregation to be involved in church discipline. Now, let's look at the contrast to this. Let's look at the side of restoration and look what Paul tells to people after this man has come back. Look at 2 Corinthians and drop down and look at verse 6. Actually, we can start in verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 5. He says, if any have caused grief, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5, he hath not grieved me but in part that I might not overcharge you all sufficient to such a man as this punishment which was inflicted. Now, I want you to watch this. Of... Many. I would like to suggest here, when he says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment, that was inflicted of many, there's an alternate translation that also works to the word that is used here, and that is the rest. You might actually have a center column reference that has something to that effect, and reading it that way, and that is a proper translation of this term at the end, it, might, it will sound something like this. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment. Now, the punishment is the, the punitive aspect of discipline that was rendered when Paul commanded them to do that in 1 Corinthians 5. So, sufficient to this man, it is worked, this church discipline is worked, and watch, which was inflicted, this act of church discipline, the punitive stage was enacted by the rest. That means you've got the sinner, the one who's to be given no refuge, and then you've got every other member of the congregation in Corinth. What that means is that when church discipline is enacted, church discipline is the act of every member of the local congregation. Now, that's just dealing with passages on discipline. What I want you to do with me is go back to 1 Corinthians, and I want to just sort of flip through the book, and I want to show you some of the descriptions in 1 Corinthians and how those descriptions... Show us collective action in church discipline. Let's go back and let's start in 1 Corinthians 3. Look about verse 6. <coughs> Watch this. I have planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he that is planted anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gave or giveth the increase. Now watch this. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. Verse 9, notice. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry. Let's take that illustration there. Let's use the illustration of the vineyard. And maybe we could just break it down and alliterate it in this fashion. Let's use the illustration of branches and how that branches proves that we together must work Collectively, together, even in matters of church discipline, even when the punitive stage is reached. The illustration of the vine and the branches is not new to the New Testament. 
It was an ancient illustration used of the Israel of old because if you go back to a passage like, say, Isaiah chapter 5, you'll find illustrations talking about Israel as a chosen vine. God planted it. He helped it to grow. But I want you to watch that they became a degenerate vine. Uh, You can look at Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2 has a lot to say about the degeneracy of the vine of Israel. But I want you to watch what God did regarding a group of people. Isaiah chapter 5 uh, starting in verse 2, uh, this passage, notice he starts by calling Israel a vine. He says, he fenced it, this is speaking of Israel, and he gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. So it's a very lucrative vineyard. It is uh, producing much fruit. God hedged it about. He blessed it. He says, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And lo and behold, notice in verse 2, it brought forth wild grapes. Now, they did that by choice. God is not imposing upon their free moral agency. He gives them the option of being a fruitful vineyard. But notice they choose not to do that. And he says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. He says, What could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done in it? What more could I have done than to plant it, nourish it, make it a fruitful vineyard? And I've done all these things and provided provisions that are above and beyond what people could expect or want and look what they've done verse 4 wherefore when I looked that it should bring forth grapes brought it forth wild grapes and now go to he says I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard I'll take away the hedge I'll destroy my people I'll let them go into captivity I'll send them through a a a sifting process a winnowing process whereby the whereby the shafe can be taken away and the the bad fruit can be taken away. But that illustration started a long time ago. So when illustrations are used of vine and branches, we know that um, you've got a a source of life and you've got the branches that are producing the fruit. And that's why Jesus just sort of takes and makes the the magnificent once-for-all illustration in John 15 of the vine and the branches. And there he calls his father the husbandman and himself the vine and we are the branches. Now I know specifically in the text... He's talking about branches to the apostles, but in, in the remote application, we are the branches. And what a beautiful illustration it is. He is the vine. He is the provider of life. Branches are connected to that. Just like in a real vine, the sap flows through and gives life to those branches. And because of that, those branches are able to produce fruit. And here we are, as long as we abide inside of the Christ and abide in His Word. John 6, verse 63 says, My words, they are spirit and they are life. It is His Word that quickens John 6, verse 63. That means that it's the Word of God that He provides as Himself the vine, and we are connected to the vine. And as long as we stay connected and abide in His Word, we are able to produce fruit. And if it is the case that we are the branches and He is the vine, and His Word tells us to enact church discipline from the very stage of preventive all the way to the punitive stage of being able to say it's come the time to withdraw fellowship then what happens to one of those branches who refuses to do what the vine tells it to do he himself becomes unfruitful he himself becomes detached from the vine and as he stays apart he's going to be withered up he's going to be dried so to speak at the the roots because he's not doing what the vine gives it direction to do the point is that is if the branches want to be connected to that vine and have life they've got to do what the vine tells them to do what the husbandman instructs and the husbandman says you have to sometimes withdraw fellowship from people here's another illustration how about this one in first corinthians 12 not only are we branches we're body look at first corinthians 12 notice in this passage beginning in verse 21 he says 
Uh, actually, verse, starting in about verse 15, or 14 rather, he says, For the body is not one member, but many of the foot shall say, Because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Then in verse 16, If the ear shall say, Because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? And he talks about the, the need or the necessity of everybody inside of not just the church universal, but here let's make it practical, the church local. And he says, now, But now God has set members, every one, of them in the body as it pleased him and if all of were one member where were the body and then he says verse 20 but now are you many members and but yet one body so you have the church but inside of the church you have many many individuals they are the members and we just take a, a local section and say here and the point to be made in this passage is that whether it be the church universal or here the church local every single person is necessary to the accomplishment of whatever spiritual tasks we undertake in Ephesians 4.16, Paul says, We are fitly joined together, we are compacted by that which every joint supplieth, which appears in the imperative form in the Greek that says, Every joint must supply. That's our responsibility. Now, what happens to a body when one member of that body quits working? It causes stress on the other members of the body to compensate for the lack of the activity in that one member. Well, let's just say that one of the members of the body is, uh, and we're talking about an individual Christian here, one of them goes astray. First Corinthians 5 is a great illustration of a man who goes off and commits fornication with his father's wife. He's doing that. Well, he injures the entire body. A little leaven leavens the whole up. He's part of the body and he's, he's injuring the whole body. But what happens then if another member of that body, when an action of punitive discipline, you know, we want to cut off that member because he's actually injuring. He's a cancer and he's spreading toward the rest of the, the body. And another member of the body says, well, I'm not helping. Well, now you put stress on every other member of the body to compensate for that lack. What you have in the Bible by the use of the body illustration is the need for every single member of the congregation to be involved, even in church discipline. How about the, how about the illustration of the building? Uh, we just read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at verse 9 where he says, You're God's husbandry. In that same passage in verse 9, notice he gets down to the end of that passage and says in verse 9, You're God's building. And then he starts talking about building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, and he gets to verse 11, talking about the, the solid bedrock, the foundation. Well, what happens when the support structure for weak and erring members, because Galatians 6.1 says, You're it. I mean, if you're faithful, you are the support structure for somebody who's erring and who's going astray and they need you. But what happens when you start taking the bricks out from under them? They have to have that support. And as a part of the building, you've got to be strong. In Ezekiel chapter 3, I love the illustration in Ezekiel chapter 3 of how that they were daubing the walls with untempered mortar. It wasn't holding. When you try to build a wall and there are weak parts of that wall, that wall won't stand. And when you as a congregation are trying to enact something that is seeking to restore an individual from unfaithfulness, if your wall is built with untempered mortar, that wall is not going to last. It's not going to stand. And if you've got members of a congregation who are doing the exact opposite of a congregation and encouraging people in their unfaithfulness, that's not helping them at all. It's not helping the church at all. And by those illustrations, by those descriptions, and there are many more in 1 Corinthians, you can see that is the case. Let me give you one more. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5, our base text. How about brethren? Aren't we a brotherhood? Again, look at the text. Verse 11, he says, Now I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother, notice the emphasis on brotherhood. 
And again in verse 1, among you, the plurality, that, that kinship. Among you, verse 2. He talks about in verse 13, among yourselves, and he's talking about the brotherhood. And when you understand that this is the unique bond of all bonds upon the face of the earth, and as James dealt with so great, in a great fashion uh, Friday night, dealing with the, the quality of fellowship and the effect of the quality of fellowship upon church discipline, I want you to notice um, it's special. I mean, it's the like precious faith, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. It's the common salvation, Jude verse 3. And when somebody who shares that beautiful bond of fellowship decides to go back and sever that bond and go back into the world that he came out of, why would you not want to be involved in church discipline? Why would you not want to reach out to that brother or sister? And even if withdrawal of fellowship has to take place, why would you not be engaged in that, knowing that the salvation of souls stands at the other end of that? In, in two ways we have seen, number one, principles regarding collective action, and number two, the pattern for collective action. Very quickly, I'll just make this real quick point. The power of collective action. And we're applying this to church discipline. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about togetherness and moving forward in the right direction together. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, and by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's by His authority, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's make a practical point of this. And, and I know that we use this and we say in doctrinal matters we have to stand that way. And that's true. Nobody's refuting that this morning. That's absolutely right. But let's make, a, let's make a practical application of this. What happens when punitive discipline occurs and the whole entire congregation as one is supposed to be saying and doing that which is in accordance with withdrawal of fellowship and say, look, we love you and we want you to come back, but there's no way that we can have social interaction or any kind of interaction with you right now and somebody says something different. Then you're not all speaking the same thing. There's no power there because the unity is not there. You're working against each other. Go back in Genesis 11, look at the Tower of Babel. Now, they're not more powerful than God, but he makes a point about unity and says nothing will be restrained from them because they're unified in their action and in their thought. Well, in the New Testament application, the positive principle of that is when you put people together and they're all working for the same purpose and they're united upon the foundation of truth, nothing can be restrained from those folks. And when you have a congregational effort to withdraw fellowship or to enact church discipline, maybe a rebuke or maybe a, a kind entreaty to a brother to come back out of sin, to get up off, of, off the ground and get back on his feet and get moving in the right direction, the only way it works is to have the power of unity standing behind that. I know it's been brief. And I apologize. I know what Eddie would have done a much better job because he was certainly more prepared than I was. But on the spur of the moment, here's what we've covered. We've seen in principle, everybody has to do it. By pattern, everybody has to do it. And then practically speaking, from the standpoint of power, how could it work without everybody being involved? And that proves that church discipline is the work of every member.